Howdy, I'm Paul Isaacoder, and this is Author's Dozen, a podcast where I explore barriers to storytelling by writing one novel every month for 12 months. Please enjoy. So here we are, another free audiobook for you, dear listener. You know why I'm doing this? Because I'm so tired, and I just feel bad. And just to be truly honest and frank and truthful, even, the world and the me that's in the world is having a really bad time. And so, I wanted to record this audiobook, because there's some place outside of this world. Ooh. You ever hear some, like, Really lame person say, oh, we were born too late to explore the earth, but too early to explore the stars. Like, they can't create something new and fun. And that people aren't creating something new and fun every single day. Like, this earth is just the only place that we can go and we're just trapped here and it's bad all day long. Well, guess what? I found somewhere new. A new mysterious world. It looks like a big ol' shell, and you saw it on the cover of this audiobook, so cover spoilers, I guess. So, if you want to listen to how I came up with this book, you can listen uh, to my podcast, starting at the episode Charismatic Sausage. Don't ask. But basically, a bunch of ideas came together um, where I was listening to uh, Science and Futurism with Isaac Arthur. He doesn't need my plug. He's way more popular than I am. But he's good. He thinks about future stuff and podcasts about it. And I started thinking, like, what if people were on this multi-year mission, this almost generational ship sort of thing where uh, they set off for this distant, mysterious object and they were supposed to accomplish a mission there, but uh, it was sort of military, and it was uh, slow, and someone was born to do like a job that they didn't really choose to do, and it was all this stuff. And uh, I think it came together in a really interesting uh, world that you can escape to right now. I think it's filled with characters and a plot and some like philosophy in there that you can sort of like you know, itch your brain with a little bit. So that said, that's why I'm doing this, even though I really don't want to be recording this right now. But I don't know. I'm sure you felt this during quarantine, but if you just do stuff for yourself all the time, you'll actually be miserable. And if you end up doing stuff for other people, you will actually be happier yourself. That's not why you do it, but you know, it's a nice side effect. So here goes. I'm going to record this audiobook and I hope you enjoy it. I am going to uh, consider pitching up my voice in this recording program that I'm using because most of the characters in this book are female. Um, who knows? If that works and you like it, then, you know, go ahead and rate us on iTunes, subscribe to us, like all our social medias or whatever. Um, if you don't like it, uh, then I can fix the episode and we can re-read, 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 re-redo it. So that's all I have to say. All right, I'm going to start the show now. 
This show will be released in four parts. It'll be a free audiobook, so please do share it with everybody. All right. Love you. Bye. Siren Deep, an audiobook in four parts, by Paul Yoder, cover art by Rachel West. Authors Dozen intro music by Andy Luton, Siren Deep music by Carl Casey at White Bat Audio. A quick disclaimer, what you're about to hear is the first draft of a novel called Siren Deep. I wrote and hastily revised Siren Deep entirely within the month of February 2020. Siren Deep is not a rough draft and is, to my knowledge, coherent. However, Siren Deep is not the book that it could become with editing and revision. I choose to publish it in its rough form for several reasons. First reason is Siren Deep was written in a month, and the rough draft displays what was accomplished within that period. It was written while I held a full-time job, produced a scripted podcast, and trained for a marathon. I believe that the rough draft will inspire others who feel the desire to write a novel but don't feel they have the resources, or to do whatever they want and don't have the resources. You can actually do that. Uh, The second reason, Siren Deep was written in a month and the rough draft displays the flaws inherent in a first draft. If you read Siren Deep and think, gosh, that storyline didn't go anywhere, or gee, that character seems underdeveloped, that's part of the deal. Writers are often disappointed when their first work doesn't measure up to the works they idolize. I believe that publishing a first draft tempers expectations and admits to the flaws that all storytellers face. You can do stuff, it don't have to be perfect first time around. Uh, the third reason, Siren Deep was written in a month, and the rough draft accompanies a podcast called Authors Dozen, where I aim to explore the boundaries of creativity and sanity by writing 12 books in 12 months. Check out AuthorsDozen.com if you'd like to support or subscribe to the free work that I'm doing. Thank you so much for your understanding, thank you so much for reading, and thank you so much for your honest but constructive thoughts, which I heartily invite on all our social media platforms. Chapter 1 With regard to the shell, sovereignty cannot afford to make a single mistake. Sovereignty, therefore, might resolve to make many. Sacrificing fleets would cost sovereignty much in reputation. From what's rumored to be beneath the shell, no cost is too high. Every ship we lose weakens our chances at victory. Not every ship. The problem, child. A woman once gathered a basket of apples. She left behind the apples unripe or rotten. Do you know what happened next? What fool predicts the future? Exactly. The woman may be robbed on the way home. She may drop her basket into some hostile river. She may arrive home without incident. She doesn't know. Neither do we. Should the best occur, her apples are unsullied by imperfection. Come the worst, though, those imperfections back on the trees are still better than nothing. The problem child's chances would be slim. What fool predicts the future? Cute. I don't like sacrificing ships, no matter how rotten or green. Sacrificing? If you're worried about sacrifice, don't put all your apples in one basket. The problem child wouldn't volunteer for such a thing. They don't need to. It only takes one rotten apple to spoil the bunch. It might be a mistake. And it might not be. If you don't make it, 
you'll never know. Chapter 2 Asha's future depended on the next seconds. Time on the orphan fleet was centered around noon, not this noon, but tomorrow's noon, the exact moment they would leave the exile rift and arrive at their new home. For Asha, however, the big green clock counting down to noon was counting down to her last hope. Hope was all she had. All the spots in the landers were already taken, but at least one out of every 200 pilots would fail the test she was about to endure. That was her hope. That, and the hope that she might be in the top percentile of the junior leagues, chosen to replace any failed senior leaguers, two equally shaky prospects. She looked to her right. The blonde, pale dawn looked back from a cockpit simulated by L-streams. The girls nodded to one another. Dawn may have been Asha's best friend, but she was also Asha's toughest rival in these tests. Asha closed her eyes. When she opened them, she was sprawled on her belly in the cockpit of her own lander. She'd chosen a drop dart lander model, a small, risky vehicle. Three wings spread out beneath her, like an arrow's fletching, and Asha's cockpit was at the arrowhead. The DDs were fragile and fast, but it was reaching the surface that mattered most. You've got this, Don said. Enstast, Asha answered. If there was any universal sentiment among the colonizers, it was Enstast. No such thing as a sure thing. Not in the orphan fleet. Asha's vision narrowed to the green clock. She made herself forget that there were more students around her and teachers in front of her. She made herself forget that the instructors were else-streaming these visions into her head. Asha concentrated on her body. Without else armor, the sudden drop from the exile rift into real space would shred her body like tissue paper. Steadfast, Asha whispered. You don't say, said else Asha. The only thing Asha hated about elsewhere power was that it required an elseman. It required sharing a body with a being that needed to be kept under control. Quiet, Asha whispered. Steadfast. Asha visualized boulders and mountains. She pictured trees with stubborn roots born into cliffside. She heard the proverbs of the loyal and firm and pressed her tongue between her teeth so as to taste her own pain. Her body hardened, not to become rigid, but to become resilient. In this state, she could take a lightning bolt to the skull without so much as a headache. The L-streams shook her imaginary dart. They whispered dark thoughts to Asha. This isn't real, they said. Why would you want to join the Landers anyway? It's dangerous. It's a waste of your precious life. Asha had prepared for this test of will. She shrugged off these doubts with the truth. I'm going with the Landers, she thought. My life is nothing but what I make it tomorrow. The clock neared one second. Asha gripped the sticks controlling her lander. Her fingers hovered over the triggers. Both triggers were required to exit the exile rift, and timing was everything. The exile rift was moving past the speed of light. At that speed, it didn't matter that Asha's target was planet-sized. The clock reached one second. It shifted from green to yellow. Asha depressed the trigger beneath her right hand. Wait, Asha thought, then gripped the trigger to her left. If what followed had been anything more than an illusion, Asha might have screamed with joy. The planet filled her vision. She dropped out danger close, already in the planet's atmosphere. 
El Sasha made a tut-tutting noise inside her head. The test isn't over, it thought. How much of me can you really take? It was a fair enough question. If Asha overused elsewhere power, she might lose control. The control would go to El Sasha, then. Elsman possession, a fate worse than death. The Elstream sent a wave of motion through her body. This was to simulate the unimaginable, a body undergoing a shockwave of its own making. Tomorrow, at that fateful noon, Asha's body and ship would explode into real space, displacing everything around her. Her ship would take most of the hit, but a body outside of metaphysical else armor would undergo a catastrophic cellular breakdown. The atmosphere batted the ship into a spiral. The force rocked Asha to one side of the cockpit. The moment the deadly shock passed, Asha transferred the entirety of her energy into the ship. The ship had its own power, but only elsewhere could unlock its true potential. Asha poured her animation into the ship, and the two were one. The dart's rigid wings turned malleable under Asha's touch. With a quick burst of elsewhere energy, Asha corrected her course, pulling out of the tumble. Asha pulled her energy back into herself. Every ounce of force she used on the dart would be taken from her elsewhere power, and every human had their limit. Every human but sovereign. Asha let her power rest as she descended. She checked her flight path right on the ball. Any shallower, and she risked skipping off the atmosphere. Any steeper, and she might not lose enough speed in the thin atmosphere to keep from burning up in the thicker air. She nudged the dart's nose left and down. It was all or nothing today, and that meant erring on the wild side of caution. The vision before her was magnificent. Shell was the most undeveloped world in the local cluster, local, of course, being a relative term. Even traveling at faster than light speeds on the Exile Rift, the Orphan Fleet had taken 16 years to travel from the old planet to the new. Asha knew the site well. The wandering planet had no star to orbit, but drifted lonely through space. Far from dark, the shell produced its own light, its own heat, its own energy. The planet glowed a sickly green, its surface overgrown with catch grass that fed from the light of the shell and swayed in the nitrogen-rich breeze. Despite Sovereign controlling most interplanetary communication, there were tantalizing rumors about this megastructure, rumors that it might lead to power beyond human understanding. The cities were sparse, spread low and thin over the surface. It was not the surface she was after. Asha pushed back the horizon. She felt her elsewhere power return to full power. The nearest dart was Dawn's, 12 kilometers behind her. Asha reminded herself that she wasn't racing Dawn. She was racing everyone, everywhere, and herself besides. If she didn't perform better than every other student in the fleet, there was a chance, however slight, she wouldn't be in a lander come tomorrow noon. Then, from the edge of the planet, the target rose to meet her. It parted from the ground like an open jaw. Inside were all the colors of space, mixed by the atmosphere to robin's egg blue, so that the opening of the shell came on like a massive tidal wave to swallow all beneath. Beneath. Beneath itself was Asha's target. 
She would be the first through the breach if she could survive the flight. On your right, Dawn said. Her voice passed through her power to Asha's, so that her voice sounded closer than if the two had been stuffed into the same cockpit. Elstreams were one of the five aspects of Elsewhere, and the most sinister. Asha didn't budge. It was Dawn's prerogative to try to beat Asha to the breach. Asha wasn't going to help her. Dawn's ship blazed at the corner of Asha's vision. The landers were built to reach and hit the surface. There would be no dogfighting. Dawn's ship disappeared as Asha's sight narrowed. The breach. The cavern that spiraled to the center of the world. Flack pummeled the air. Asha's fingers moved to the second set of triggers. Deploying the foils and parachutes too early would give the defenders time to blast her out of the sky. Deploying them too late would splatter her dart against the surface like a rotten grape. The surface of Shell would be more than unforgiving. It was, in fact, indestructible. Asha grinned. She ignored her instruments and looked at Don's ship. Don looked back. Across a half-k distance of dreamed reality, the two understood one another. One of them was going to pull the chute first. It wouldn't be Asha. Dawn looked back to her instruments and to the ground ahead. Asha kept her eyes on Dawn. Heat seekers rocketed up from the surface. The darts scattered flares. A kinetic projectile pinged the foils of Asha's right wing. She placed her palm against the side of the cockpit and spent a bit of energy resealing the hole. It was all part of the test. Asha was near the last quarter of her guidelines when Dawn pulled her foils. Asha let a half-second pass before doing the same. Her craft steadied as it lost speed. Asha watched Dawn as they neared the edge of their suggested parachute height. They passed the suggestion. Asha's eye narrowed until she could see nothing but Dawn. Pull, she thought. You know I'll outlast you. But as Asha's numbers clicked down and the warning lights began to glow, Dawn stayed the course. Asha's future depended on the next second. She waited. The instant Asha saw Don's pilot shoot, she pressed both triggers. She split the remainder of her energy between her ship and her armor. Empowered by elsewhere energy, her ship and her body withstood whiplash that would have otherwise torn them apart. Asha's harness pulled in against her arms, her chest, her waist. Else armor distributed the force throughout her entire body, as though she was made of the same invincibility as the shell. The ground rushed up to meet her. She was first through the breach. Light was everywhere, green from below and white from above. Asha fired her retro rockets seconds before impact. Her dart's three wings made a tripod against the catch grass. Asha ejected, dropping feet first to the ground below. All of her energy went into armor. She scanned her surroundings and found a nearby village. In all reality, they had no idea what defenses the shell would have. They did, however, prepare for and test for the worst. Asha could hear a commotion from the simulated village. This was the end of the test. Dawn's lander touched down 50 yards away. Asha needed another risk. Asha split her power's energy between Else Armor and Else Flight. By the time Dawn ejected from her dart, Asha was already shooting across the ground toward the village. Her body weighed next to nothing. Armor strength and legs pounded the shell, 
until Asha moved with blinding speed. Villagers emerged from their homes with projectile weapons and spears. Asha transferred all of her elsewhere power to armor as the first villagers took aim. Their bullets, robbed by her armor of the quality to penetrate, still kicked against Asha like forceful shoves. Still running, Asha transferred half of her armor into an else blast. The bolts of energy that flew from her hand would have little effect on an armored opponent, but Anchorites didn't have elsewhere power. Her bolts wounded one of the two militia and sent the rest to cover. She kept up her stride and focused her else blasts into an else blade. Asha pictured a sword. It appeared in her dominant left hand, weightless and sharp beyond human reckoning. She closed in on the first, then the second, then the third enemy. Her reinforced arms carved the atom-sharp weapon like a scythe through wheat. The blade found its way inside molecules, breaking down the bonds between elements. Bodies separated, hissing as their intramolecular bonds burned away. She didn't wonder if she'd be able to kill real people. The Anchorite civilization had descended into evil beyond redemption. Their destruction was a mercy, but that wasn't the reason they had to be destroyed. The reason was that sovereignty had demanded it. Asha took down man after man. Soon dawn was beside her, and they plunged down the middle of the village. Asha took every soul to the left, and dawn, every soul to the right. At the edge of town, they saw fleeing women and children. Asha had no trouble with the women. In fact, she favored them with her sword, reasoning that the children could be saved for later. Be honest, said Asha's power. And with that, the power began to fade. No, Asha thought. The elsewhere power was her only strength. It was the only thing that set her apart from these anchorite scum. I... If you don't want me, the elseman whispered. I can find someone else. It was a possibility. Power could be transferred from one body to another, whether by the will of the human or that of the elseman, which had a will of its own. Asha began to panic. She cut down a mother with a babe in its arms. She looked down at the child. She knew it to be a simulation, a dream. She raised her sword against the screaming child that was not real, yet... Suddenly, Asha was back in the exile rift. She looked up. Five instructors stood before Asha's class, who had, to a girl, been seated quietly at their desks. Asha resisted the urge to look around. She saw Dawn out of the corner of her eye. Asha was glad that Dawn had done well. Asha was elated Dawn hadn't done well enough to outshine Asha. The head instructor, an old wisdom named Ingfrid, rose to her feet. No matter your performance, she droned, you are all on standby for the next week. If we are lucky, we will never have to use a single one of you. If we do need relief, the scores are as follows. A wall of L-streamed text appeared before the class. Asha looked to the top of the list. She blinked. She saw Don's name at the top. She blinked again. Again, no amount of blinking could remove Don's name from the number one slot. Dejected, Asha looked to the number two slot. She did not see her name. Neither did she see it in third, fourth, or fifth place. Desperately, 
She began to scan the rest of the list, her heart sinking all the while. When she finally reached the name Asha, she knew there had to be some mistake. She was at the very bottom of the twenty-girl class. Asha, Asha who had been first through the breach, was now last in her grade standing. She was surprised to hear her own shaking voice. Why, Zingfrid, she said. Ingfrid shot Asha a warning look. Why, Zingfrid? Asha repeated. Please, I think there was a mistake. Class dismissed, Ingfrid said. She motioned to the door of the cramped classroom. Dawn stood. She looked down at Asha. As first in this final test, it was her honor to leave first. I'm sorry, Dawn whispered. She turned and was gone. One by one, the girls stood and left in order of achievement. The first left with heads held high. The middling achievers left in stride, happy, at least, to have not failed so utterly as those they left behind. As the girls trickled out, Asha felt her blood rising. She allowed her power to waken. How'd we do? asked Asha's power. Asha looked back to the empty classroom. She looked ahead to her instructors, expectant, scornful women, too old to take place in tomorrow's glory. That bad, huh? Asha stood. Steadfast, she whispered. Her body took on resilience. Her skin went taut. The instructors stood, hardening their own bodies. Oh, Power said. Oh, damn. Stand down, whispered the now sneering Ingfrid. Wise Ingfrid, Asha said. There was a mistake. Chapter 3 Ingfrid watched Asha with erudite calm. You think you can change the truth through force? Ingfrid asked. Yes, Asha said. Correct, Ingfrid said. She held her palm up and began walking her thumb up and down her four fingertips. Force is what makes right and wrong. Right and wrong are not inborn, but imposed through princes and principalities, kings and kingdoms, sovereign and sovereignty. Ingrid turned her careless eyes to the four instructors. Though aged and spotted, their skin looked as hard as tanned leather. Their muscles, though thin, were steel. Were we mistaken? She asked the wisdom to her right. No, wise Ingrid, the woman answered. With a thin-lipped smirk, Ingfrid looked back on Asha. Do not cite laws at those who overpower you, Asha. Your power is not your own. As easily as it was lent, it can be recalled. No one has power of their own accord, Asha said. Yes. All power flows to the sovereign and from the sovereign. Your point, Asha. You were assigned to this mission for the same reason I was. You, by choice, and I, by chance, were assigned to wipe out the Anchorite and recover the assets for the sovereignty. Yes. And by denying your best student her rightful place, you reveal that you are not on sovereignty's mission. Ingfrid shook her head. The old woman began to elstream again. Asha saw a reenactment of the battle she'd just fought. She saw her sword cleave and cleave, then pause when confronted with the babe in the woman's arms. You were unwilling to kill the Anchorite children, Ingfrid said. We are to recover Anchorite assets. Are Anchorite children not 
Anchorite assets? You came in too close to the planet, Ingford said. She showed Asha a picture of the jump into real space. Asha's ship blinked into existence far ahead of her classmates. Asha shook her head. I came in exactly as close as I wanted to. You left no room for error, and I committed no error. Mistakes are inevitable. Your arrogance cannot be allowed to endanger our limited manpower and equipment. What's the danger of reticence? Asha asked. What if one daring pilot saves the lives of a hundred others, refusing to gamble as a gamble all its own? Can you afford to risk not taking a risk? Ingfrid shook her head. The stooped old woman moved toward Asha, one slow step at a time. Let me tell you of risk, Ingfrid said. If we let you leave this room without punishment, our word is no longer law. It doesn't matter how smart any invasion plan may be. Without ironclad leadership, there is no plan to begin with. Ingfrid came close enough that Asha could smell her age. Ingfrid straightened so that she was almost Asha's height. Asha could feel Ingfrid's power, however, which loomed far above Asha's own. You must obey, Ingfrid said, because I must be obeyed. Asha saw her future dissolve before her eyes. She took a deep breath, then dismissed her power. Her body softened. Good, Ingfrid said. Come with me. Ingfrid led Asha from the classroom. They stepped out into the cylinder. Having so recently been planet-side, if only in Elstreams, the cylinder appeared strange and backward. There was no horizon. The ground around the concrete footpath curled up, not down, and only twenty kilometers of sky separated Asha from the grounds of the A. Chevrolet sector. Twenty kilometers from her left and right were the twenty-kilometer-wide caps that held the sectors of the cylinder together. It was all centered around a tube of light stretching between the caps. The tube was the Exile Rift itself, a space-time anomaly powered by sovereignty, pulling the cylinder at faster-than-light speed toward the shell. The Exile Rift was one of the elsewhere powers only available to Sovereign, a place where place did not exist, where matter was everywhere and nowhere. Asha had grown up on the inside of D Maiden Sector, nicknamed Diane, one of the four sectors in which women were permitted to live. Across the cylinder lay the Chevalier Sectors, also named A through D. There were technically eight sectors, but the inhabitants thought of them as seven. This was due to the fact that men and women could cohabitate in the prestigious A sectors. Asha frowned. She knew what men were like from lectures and L-streams. She'd met a few D. Chevaliers at the rare mixers afforded to top students. They'd ignored her. She was no shapely beauty, but had hoped to make up for her physicality by skill and prestige. No man would want her now that she was to be left out of the invasion. Reservists were pitiable and nothing more. She heard a warning cry in the park to her left. There, a group of constables marched a warped figure through the grass. The figure was human, but moved like a beast. It could be worse, Asha thought. The figure turned toward Asha. Its face was twisted and bloody, its nose pushed up between its eyes and flattened so that the nostrils pointed outward like a bat's snout. 
They'd caught this girl before she could do too much harm. On her head rested a device that looked almost like a crown. The TAJ Brain Buster device. We expected that a few students would turn to Fellman, Ingford noted. You wonder if you should have done the same. She's got a circlet that will lance her skull in two if she uses elsewhere power, Asha said. It's hardly enviable. Ingford shrugged. You pushed our other limits. Why not that one? Asha nodded. The poor girl that had once inhabited the snub-nosed body was no more. Her power would have to be ripped out, which, to a body ruled by an Elseman, was a death sentence. I pushed limits to help the fleet, Asha said. Elseman possession does the opposite. Yes, Ingford mused. Dying to possession is shameful. Dying in the assault is glorious. I... Self-aggrandizement is admissible in the orphan fleet, so long as self has its place. Asha turned away from the unfortunate creature. She sighed. Of all noises I expected from you, Ingford muttered, I least expected sighs. Asha took a deep breath. I'm to be left out of my purpose. Ancillaries and reservists might participate. I hope not. I'd be sorry if you did. Ingford's shuffle was infuriating and glacial. She would not long survive the war. If our first wave doesn't wipe them out, we're in for a costly war. The reservists ought to be the last left standing. I don't want... I know. Ingford turned off the concrete path toward the train station. Your protest showed your dedication. I would not have accepted anything less. Asha nearly tripped. That said, Ingford grumbled, I would not have accepted anything more. You should be glad that you stepped down before I had your power removed. What do you mean? Asha asked. They mounted the boarding platform. Dozens of girls and women waited patiently for the train, thickening the air with silent anticipation. You were placed at the bottom for a reason, Ingford whispered. A test of will, a trap, an isolation, and excuse. No one saw your response to the test, and no one will miss you on landing day. Is this another test? So close to zero hour. Ingford shook her head. Not anymore. From here on, you are my agent. For what? Asha whispered. She felt her power creep to the fore. I knew it, Elsa Asha said. You're meant for this. You were born for this. Ingfrid kept her silence as the maglev pulled into the station. Doors hissed open, and the women of Diane boarded the train for the mustering ground. Two women offered Asha and Ingfrid their seats. Asha hesitated, but Ingfrid almost dragged her to her side. They made eye contact. In silence, said Ingfrid's power. The Elsman and Ingfrid had a richer, deeper voice than the body in which she lived. The Elseman was unmarred by age or stature. Asha turned her power toward Elstreams. Each power had five aspects. Armor, flight, dreams, animation, and attack. Each of them had strengths and weaknesses against the others. Dreams were deceptive, but they could only imitate senses. Dreaming against a dreamer put two humans on the same level, able to dismiss or accept one another's deceptions at will. As you wish, Asha thought. 
Your thought speech is good. I remember that you used to have trouble L-streaming, but that's to be expected from an orphan. Asha tried not to think about that. Family bonds can enhance L-streams. I like to think that I'm stronger for having to work at it. The Exile Rift will pass by the Anchorite Shell World at noon tomorrow. Because we are traveling faster than light, we have a very small window of time where we can safely re-enter real space and come into Shell's orbit. Asha nodded. We suspect that Sovereignty might be hiding something. Ingrid, Asha thought. That's... Don't think for a second it's not possible. It's Sovereignty's prerogative to do what it likes. If it wants to ram us headlong into Shell, then that's what we'll do. There's nothing you and I can do to fight Sovereignty. The Conate tried, and Sovereign wiped their genes from the galaxy. The Anchorites tried, but that's why we're here to wipe them out. But the Shell is important, Asha. Too important to be left to chance, or to one fleet. It's the strangest object the universe has ever seen aside from sovereignty itself. If I were sovereign, I'd want to use Shell or destroy it. And, since it can't be destroyed. We're not the only invasion fleet? I didn't say that. I only said that if sovereignty wants Shell, it won't take chances on one or two fleets. When will we find out? When we drop into real space. That's where you come in. You're going to materialize in atmosphere, like you did in the L-stream. I... Yes, Ingfrid grinned. You're going to be the first. Chapter 4 The orphan fleet was as old as Asha, but its ships were far older. Asha had grown up on stories of the Kanat system. There, state-of-the-art ships hopped from planet to planet in mere days. Few, however, desired to live anywhere but Kanat itself, a vibrant, varied world of billions. The ships on the mustering ground were like the citizens of Cylinder, leftovers. Asha surveyed the ships, all painted a dark matte brown in imitation of the Ares shipyards where they had been retrofitted. Most bore a stenciled hand, to represent the reach of humanity under sovereignty. It was said that handprints were in every arm of the galaxy, with especially mad colonists on eon-long trips to etch sovereignty's fingers against far-off galaxies. All right hands, of course, to the lefty Asha's disappointment. Battle fleets were another matter. They had originally been founded to fight against the Conate Conspiracy. The Conate Conspiracy had been a millennia in the making, one family, their original name, now lost to time and infamy, had achieved interplanetary L-streaming with careful breeding and genetic modification. This family had spread throughout the stars inbreeding to maintain their family connection and genetic monoculture. Using this communication system to trade technology from planet to planet, the family had grown rich enough to attempt to seize the power of sovereignty. Sovereign, hard-pressed by this rebellion, had bribed colonies with its own technology and riches into building fleets to conquer their nearby systems. The real prize for a fleet, however, was the right of conquest. The orphan fleet would get shell if they won. Their technology promised by Sovereign for their service was just a bonus. 
The train passed through kilometers of docks. Every ship was awash with human activity, resembling sugar cubes swarmed by ants. More and more women disembarked until Asha and Ingfrid were the last aboard. The train conductor had to confer with Ingfrid in dream speech before they were even allowed to continue. They were near the very end of the forecap when they finally disembarked. Asha glowed. She was about to be inducted into the elite, the vanguard, the tip of the spear that would take the new world for the orphan fleet. Once an unwanted bit of surplus population, Asha would become necessary, known, needed. Asha frowned when she saw the foremost ships. These were no sleek jet fighters or massive carriers. These were like no vehicles she'd ever been trained to pilot. She privately wondered if the bulky and awkward designs would even fly. Where are we? Asha asked. Ingfrid led her off the train and down the covered platform. You'll pilot a DD to the surface, same as the simulation. Asha breathed a sigh of relief. Tied to a vessel? Yes, and that is what must remain entirely between you and I. Ingfrid shuffled down the platform stairs, putting both feet on each step before attempting the next. Your team must all enter real space at the same time, meaning that your ships will be slave-circuited to one another. Naturally. Your team will trigger their approach to match the rest of the fleet. You will wait one second longer. Asha slowed. Ingfrid was another five steps forward before turning over her shoulder, staring down her student with reproach. Why is Ingfrid? Asha said. She bowed at the waist. You are asking me to break trust with my squad before I ever meet them. And I'm glad that bothers you. I didn't say it bothered me. Ingfrid raised a snow-white eyebrow. Asha straightened. It only gives me pause. You want a good reason? Yes. You ought to prepare a safe LZ for the problem child, an experimental vehicle meant to secure forward positions inside the shell. Problem child? The problem child does not play well with others. You will see why in a moment. Ingford kept on and motioned for Asha to follow. The problem child works best as an individual unit. That makes it ideal should there be a second fleet. Why? Asha had to jog to catch up to Ingford. Will we fight the second fleet? If such a fleet exists, and if they arrive at the same time we do, we will likely be allies long before we're enemies. The Anchorites are the priority. Sovereignty demands it. But after the Anchorites are dead, if all this comes to pass and if the Anchorites are no more, it will suddenly be very important to have our ships in the most strategic positions. The further into the center of shell, the better. What's at the center of the shell? We don't know. We just know that it's dense, so dense that the lopsided planet, if we can call it a planet, has but a single vector of gravity. Rare, that. Those who studied the shell from afar guessed that the core of the planet was no larger than one kilometer across, but that the core somehow contained more mass than the rest of the megastructure combined. The only people to study the shell up close were the anchorites, and they certainly weren't telling what they'd found. Asha nodded. Considering what the shell's made of, that's saying something. What we think it's made of. Ingfrid corrected. No more about the shell. You've been trained to adapt and overcome. That's what you'll do. That's how you'll protect the problem, child. Ingfrid stepped in front of a dark blue spheroid. It was 15 by 30 meters, 
roughly the width of Asha's classroom and the length of the maglev train. A rock? Asha asked. A teardrop, said a voice from her left. Amidst all the comings and goings of pilots and crew, Asha hadn't taken notice of any person in particular. There was, however, something quite peculiar about the woman emerging from behind the dark blue object. Most, in the maiden sectors, wore their hair short, especially those with military ambition. This one had tight dreadlocks coming down around her sweat-soaked forehead. The hair cut off before it reached her neck, giving her the appearance of wearing a tentacled helmet. Sina Ares, she said, offering her hand to Asha. My friends call me C. Asha took the handshake, surprised by its speed. Nice to meet you, C. I'm Asha. C grinned, then turned to Ingfrid. So, when does my recruit arrive? Ingfrid met C's question with a withering glare. C took a deep breath and, still smiling, turned back to the ship. Unless, of course, you two age-challenged dimwits mean to saddle my crew with this stripling. Asha's eyes bulged until they felt like they were sticking out past her nose. She glanced at Engfrid, sure that the wisdom was prepared to cut the impudent C in half. Instead, Engfrid followed C without complaint. Asha held her tongue with some effort. C began walking backward like a tour guide, her dark cheeks bunched up in a toothy, sarcastic smile. She took a babying tone. This, children and crones, is the entry shell. It's made of heat shields. Does anyone know what heat shields are? C. Ingfrid said, enough. No, C's grin became so exaggerated as to look painful. Well, let me tell you about heat. Heat is what happens when a woman works on a project for 18 years, only to see it placed in the hands of someone who's barely got her baby teeth. C. Ingfrid's tone was a warning this time. C gestured to the opposite side of the entry craft. It tapered into a strange fin-like shape. The teardrop-shaped design is to minimize drag. Drag is when countervailing forces impede forward progress. Teardrops are what will occur when the fleet's most sophisticated design is bogged down by those without knowledge or courage. Asha kept her composure. She kept her eyes on sea. Ingfrid ought to be defending her decision, and Asha besides, but to demand such defense would look weak on Asha's part. C met Asha's glare. Do you know why you're here, little mouse? I do. C smacked her palm down on the heat shields. Because you owe everything to Ingfrid, and nothing to me. Because my underling will not be under my control, but indebted to some higher up. I will be undercut at every turn. C took a knee before Asha and adopted a groveling tone. I will be forced at every turn to ask, may I please, little princess, do as I please? Ingfrid smacked C across the face. Had Ingfrid wished, she could have summoned a weapon. She could have armored her hand, putting resilience behind the blow. Instead, the slap was weak and crisp. C lowered her head, seething. There is a saying in our family, Ingfrid hissed. Beware of the offhand. Our family? Asha asked. See, Ingfrid said. Meet your new scout, a student of mine. She turned to Asha. Asha, meet your new captain a daughter of mine. Chapter 5 Wisdom Ingfrid left Asha with the now subdued but still unhappy C. I'll gather the others, C said. She gestured to the small on-ramp that led inside the teardrop shield. Head inside. Hodney will show you around. Asha did as she was told. As she entered the structure, 
she noted three seams running from front to back, all attached at the teardrop's taper to a large cable, and the cable itself attached to the ship's inner structure. It's supposed to open, said a muffled voice. Asha looked to her right, surprised to see a small figure sandwiched between the outer shell and the inner hull. In the darkness, the figure almost looked to be a child. What is? Asha asked. The figure emerged from the shadows as Asha's eye adjusted. She was undoubtedly a full-grown woman, or at least as full-grown as she would ever be. Asha was used to the sight of hormone variants, but had to quickly reevaluate how she responded to this woman. As honored as hubs were in fleet culture, there was still the danger of unconscious discrimination. Asha bowed at the waist, then fully straightened before offering her hand. The woman removed a thick glove from her right hand before accepting the handshake. Hodney? Asha. Hodney gave a perfunctory grin. I heard you outside, or rather, I didn't hear you. Her flat voice and return to nonchalance gave Asha the impression of someone only feigning emotion for the benefit of others. Asha only nodded. Hodney shook her head, which stood about a meter above the floor. C's never liked her mother meddling. Probably the reason she works with me. Hodney walked up the rest of the ramp and waved Asha forward. Asha finally had a chance to look Hodney over without appearing to stare. Even in engineer's coveralls, Hodney was distractingly attractive and feminine. The reduction in height only served to highlight Hodney's gendered characteristics. Asha was, herself, rather lacking in that regard. You must think I'm crazy, doing adjustments the day before zero hour. Not really. Truthfully, Asha hadn't had time to think anything about Hodney. No crazier than the person who assigned me to your ship at the last minute. Hodney nodded. We don't get to choose. In this fleet, I should know. I didn't mean... Don't worry about offending me, Hodney reassured. I was born this way, whether you or I like it or not. Her monotonous voice made Asha wonder if Hodney liked or disliked anything at all. I... thanks. Best way to break tension is at full speed. Hodney placed her gloves on the ship's locker. Speaking of, the heat shield will expand as we barrel into the atmosphere. When it goes critical, these seams will break. The teardrop will open into a three-bladed airfoil. That will slow us down enough to deploy chutes. No retro rockets. No, I want the ship to be as inert as possible. You're going to use power on this thing before landing. Hodney nodded. She placed her hand on the ship's hull. Asha could feel the power of animation flow beneath her boots. Sea's not all bad, Hodney said. She made sure I got power. That's rare for my kind. Well, that's not what I... I said, don't worry. Hodney gave another disingenuous flash of a smile before disappearing back into impassivity. I'll be aboard the ship during the invasion. The problem child is really two ships smashed together. One for transportation, and the other for combat and climbing. A chimera? More like two halves of a brain. Hodney pointed to each of her temples in turn. They might excel at different things, but they can fill in for one another should the need arise. You'll need two pilots. Correct. I'm not good for much else than animation anyway, though I am quite good for that. I believe you, Asha said. In fact, she had never felt such powerful animating energy as she sensed from Hodney. If need be, she had no doubt that Hodney could pilot both halves of the cobbled-together ship. Asha surveyed the curved room ahead. 
The problem child had a large interior for a land vessel. It was packed to the brim with enough ammunition, food, and equipment to supply a dozen soldiers for a dozen days. The seats were built into the floor, and some were already folded down to provide room for the stores. This is a lot, Asha said. The belly of the ship distends to give us more room. They won't need all this, Asha thought. They don't know what I'm getting them into. Good to know I won't be going hungry, Asha looked to the other walls. I'm not seeing any built-in weapons. They're on the exterior. You won't see them until you land. You won't have to. What if I have to pilot? Hodney gave a winning grin. Between C and me, we won't need backup. If we did, we'd go to these three. Asha turned. She saw four figures waiting at the bottom of the on-ramp. Below, C motioned for Asha and Hodney to descend. No such thing as a sure thing, Asha said. If it comes to it, Hodney said, you'll get to know this ship like the back of your hand. Chapter 6 Before meeting Hodney, Asha had no idea how tall C was. When the two stood side by side, C's lanky frame was difficult to ignore. Asha stood silent while the five members of her new squad looked her over. She felt like a sculpture, one which, judging by the looks on the crew's faces, they'd found wanting. C, who had so recently decried Asha, now became her begrudging advocate. She's an extra body. It can't hurt. The three dart pilots looked on with different levels of skepticism. C looked to the first. You've never needed my permission to speak, Rook. The slave circuits make us a single unit. Rook was the youngest and kindest looking of the three. Her hair was bleached and boyish, and a neon sea serpent tattoo curled up over her left ear. If she drags her feet on re-entry, we're char. Quinn was of a height with C, but had a stoop to her shoulders that, combined with her raven hair and dark, cynical eyes, gave her an aristocratic air. If, she said. She made eye contact with Asha. What's your standing? Best in my class, Asha said. C looked ready to correct Asha, but decided to let it go. Asha was first in her class's rankings on most subjects. In what? Quinn pressed. I'm a middling L-streamer. I'm first or second in the other four aspects. Quinn's cheeks rose in a cutting sneer. You didn't say second best in your class, did you? I'm second best at Elf's flight, Asha said. Pardon my misphrasing. The oldest of the three shook her head. The others called her Walleye. Asha guessed that the name originated from whatever lay behind the right eye patch that hung down from Walleye's suede turban. Go on, C encouraged. I don't see the use, grumbled the older woman. No reason to waste the young. How old were you when you were in the turban? Asha asked. Walleye's left eye widened. Old enough to mind my elders. Walleye pointed to her eye patch. I lost this the same day I earned my battlefield honor, girl. You think you want this turban. You don't want what it cost. C stepped in. What Asha does and doesn't want isn't the point. The point is, is that what the wisdom says goes. Asha's a part of us. If you're upset that you don't have a say in that, remember, neither does she. Quinn stooped until her eyes were level with Asha's. She seemed to be taking a perverse pleasure in the chaos of Asha's arrival. The best, she sneered. I'd rather not have the best. Any idea why, a little fool? Asha tried her very best not to react. I'm full of myself, she said. Very good. Quinn straightened and looked to the problem child. 
Don't overestimate yourself, and we won't have to remind you of your place. She was like you, once. The voice came from the veteran Walleye. Asha opened herself to the voice, but kept from looking Walleye's way. Good, thought Walleye. The veteran's power sounded like a sturdy pine in rough weather. Do not for a second believe that any of us wish you ill or believe you to be less than you are. Quinn, least of all, though she hides it well. That's enough about Asha, C said. She began outlining the mission, minus Ingfrid's secret instructions. In Asha's mind, Walleye's thoughts overcame C's words. The others think you need to stand on your own, or you'll weigh them down. What do you think? Asha asked Walleye. I know you need a helping hand, Walleye thought. I don't think so. You're wrong. Asha dared to look at Walleye, who was grinning at their secret conversation. We all need help, Walleye thought. You need it today, but it might be that we'll need it tomorrow. From you, perhaps. Well, I'll help whenever I can. You think so? Walleye's thoughts deflated in tone, leveling to a heavy sigh. But it might be that the time will come and you'll think of them as they think of you. A burden. Surely not. Enstast. Prepare for us to be a burden to you, Asha, so that you are not surprised if and when it comes. And then, Asha was in space. It took Asha a few moments to realize what was happening. Having opened herself to Walleye's thoughts, Asha had opened herself to an else dream. The dream was beyond vivid. Every simulation Asha had ever faced paled in comparison to the scene before her. No, not before her, but in her. She tasted smoke. Her inner ear not only pounded under the noise, but told her that she was on a ship under high G's, trying desperately to escape some uncontrolled dive. The Ares incident. The shameful rebellion. The Anchorite converts who had tried to steal the orphan fleet were firing on Asha's warship, throwing all missiles and slugs in one desperate blast in the vain hope that Kanat would simply let them be free of sovereignty. Walleye had made no alteration to this memory, save the girl who lay dying in Asha's arms. It was Dawn, Asha's friend. Fool, said Asha's power. It's an illusion. But this had happened. Walleye was showing Asha what she had experienced in orbit over Ares, what had been real and might be again. Asha cut herself off from the vision. Back in reality, the others looked at Asha in silence. C shook her head. No haze in the rookie, she met Asha's eyes. And keep better discipline of your own head. Asha nodded. What the blazes was that? Asha thought to Walleye. For me, it was the day of so-called honor, Walleye replied. For you, it's only a helping hand. Chapter 7 What's wrong? Don asked. Asha frowned. She'd been staring across the room at Dawn without realizing it. It hadn't mattered a moment ago, as Dawn was only now emerging from an L-stream. She had been thinking back and forth with someone from the B. Chevrolet sector. Sorry, Asha said. She laid back on her cot. Just thinking. She'd been thinking a lot since this afternoon. I'm sorry for what happened, Dawn said. She lowered her eyes. It's not fair what Ingfrid did. 
what Ainford did. Asha suddenly remembered that she ought to be devastated. Dawn wasn't to know that Asha was privileged to lead the fleet's charge. It's not your fault, Asha said. No, but I got a spot I didn't earn. What is your spot, anyway? Dawn grinned at the ceiling. You know I can't tell you. There was something dreamlike about Dawn's smile. Asha shook her head. Something that'll land you this mystery boy? He's not a boy. If he can talk to you from the opposite side of the cylinder, he must be as powerful as you. More, Don said. Her grin grew mischievous. If you can't tell me your mission, which of course I can't, then at least tell me about this guy friend. Don turned onto her side. The girl's room was just a few strides square, and they faced one another from across a narrow space between their beds. Fine, she said in a tone that did not strike Asha as the least reluctant. His name is Prince. No, it's not. No, but it will be someday. He'll have a principality one day, and I'll have it with him. Asha frowned. The expectation of ruling a region of Shell seemed lofty at best. Have you two ever met? Once. When? Well, ten years ago. Blazes, Don. We've been talking ever since. So, you're in love with an eight-year-old. He was ten. Asha rolled her eyes so far that it hurt. Oh, he's twenty now. Much better. You know I'm smart for my age. That's what I thought until now. It's different. Don shook her head and turned away. He's brilliant and handsome, and he's already got his own command. So why are you, like, turning away in shame? Don blushed. I... Oh, Asha said. Don, I didn't mean... Don set her jaw. Didn't mean what? If you don't think you're good enough for him, you're wrong. Asha sighed and turned away. You beat me today for a reason. You've got better temperament, better outlook. You're less selfish and jealous and terse. At your worst, you're better than my best. Don practically attacked her with a powerful hug. Cut that out. Asha laughed. Sure. I know I'll be good for him. I'll give him a planet, after all. Asha wrapped an arm around Dawn, who clung to her side like bark on a tree. Well, that doesn't mean you're off the hook. Neither are you, Dawn grinned. I know you're up to something. Asha blinked in shock. What? If the only way planet side was to gut me and wear my skin, I'd be dead already. Never. Am I wrong? Well, your skin wouldn't fit me, first of all. Fair enough. Dawn released Asha, but stayed on her bed. I do think you'll fight on Shell. You wouldn't be Asha otherwise. Nope, Asha admitted. She stared at the ceiling until sleep. The whole night, Asha could think of nothing but Walleye's vision, when Dawn had lain dying in her arms. Chapter 8 We've mitigated our risk. Well, that's all we can do. Something else troubles me, Fleet Commander. Enlighten me. You mentioned the possibility of other fleets. That was wise, yet it doesn't account for the enemy we're sure to face. The Anchorites? The Anchorites are powerless. Little more than wandering hermits, completely outside the protection of sovereignty. What enemy, then? Ourselves. Interesting. I can see now why my fellows have such high hopes for your career. If we split up our fleet, we should be ready for massive power transfer. If the main fleet is cornered or bogged down, the scouts should have the power to carry on. 
I thought you were talking about infighting. I am. It's inevitable. How so? Our society is far more stratified than the one back home. It has to be. We regulate sex, for one. A necessity for military engagement. Our coming generation cannot be too numerous. Besides, controlling the means of procreation is our greatest tool for punishment and reward. Once we wipe out the Anchorites, which you know will not be any great task, the fleet will no longer be a fleet. Once settlers get a foothold, they'll demand change. There will no longer be an external threat to justify our war footing. Everyone will be equally powerful. Everyone will do what is right in their own eyes. And how would this power transfer solve such a problem? The scouts will become the nobility. For survival and for the mission, our people would willingly surrender their power to our scouts. Our people would then become as tame as the anchorites. The scouts would not only have the power, but also the claim of conquest. They would rule our society without threat from below, and their reform would be as gradual as need be. Should we trust our scouts with such a duty? I hope we won't have to. Instast. I'll prepare a transfer, should the worst come. Thank you, Wisdom. Chapter 9 Asha's survival depended on the next seconds. Time on the orphan fleet was centered around noon. This noon. Today. The noon five minutes from now. Asha lay on her belly in the drop dart. It was not her first time in the ship, nor was it the first time lifting off from the mustering ground. Her nerves were up, of course, but she had trained for that. She ran through her pre-flight checklist, even though she found it difficult to think. There was, at this point, no thinking involved. Her next moments were down to muscle memory. Four minutes. She looked to her left and right. The three other darts rose up with the teardrop-shaped problem child. The cylinder's forecap was open to the elements, as every man and woman aboard the station was readying for the invasion. The back half of the cylinder was still pressurized, with only reservists and children remaining aboard. They're calling them the orphans' orphans, joked Rook. Grim, well, I thought. We don't have time dilation in the Exile Rift, Hodney observed. Everyone we left behind is aged the same as us. Just try getting back to them, while I thought. No one traveled the rift without sovereignty's say-so. Shell was their home now, and whatever families or lives they'd left 16 years ago were lifetimes away by the fastest of mankind's conventional rockets. Three minutes. Asha kept her thoughts to herself. She, like Dawn and the rest of their classmates, were the unwanted children of Kanat. If the few children born in transit were to be orphaned, at least they would know that their parents fought and died for them, that their parents cared for them. Only dream speak from here on out if you've got something important to say. Captain C's thoughts had a tone of giddy excitement, like a child ready to play with its toys. Don't tax your power. We might have to fight all day. Asha nodded to herself. Her power was at its height. If you can't fight anymore, give your power to someone who can. Asha tried not to think about that. She wouldn't say no to more power, but she didn't wish harm or powerlessness on anyone in the fleet. Maybe she wouldn't need more power at all. They had no idea, after all, what sort of battle lay ahead. Two minutes. Asha thought back to the simulation. There was one last skill that didn't come automatically to her. The children. The children that she had to destroy. What if she hesitated? 
Slave circuits on, C thought. Then, privately, she thought to Asha. You'll be fine. My mother wasn't much of a mother, but she's a heck of a teacher. Thank you, Asha thought. One minute. That was one more thing she hadn't trained for. Betrayal. Subversion. Perhaps her disdain towards deception was why she'd never been good at L-Streams. Perhaps this was the practice she needed. Remember where power lies, said Elsasha. Serve Ingrid, and you'll serve yourself. I've got this, Asha thought. Her hands were on the sticks. Her fingers hovered over the triggers. The numbers on her dash ticked down and down half a minute. Steadfast, Asha whispered. You don't say, said Elsasha. She suddenly knew why her instructors had tested her with doubts and deception. Her brain was coming up with their own, now that danger lay ahead. The exile rift was moving past the speed of light. Her delay would put Problem Child and her crew far ahead of the rest of the fleet. No support, no backup, no retreat. What if Ingfrid is lying? What if she has some other motive? What if... The timer hit zero. Asha was, by practiced instinct, fully armored. The timer hit negative one. Asha pressed her triggers. Chapter 10 All fights ends in in siren deep. All finds its end in siren deep. Chapter 11 Nothing could have prepared Asha for the seismic shock of returning to real space. The exile rift was beyond the ken of mere humans. The ability of sovereignty to cut scars in the space between spaces was the only thing that held the galaxy together. Light took over a hundred years to travel from Kanat to Shell. The same trip through the exile rift had taken little over sixteen. Asha knew that, physically, she was still the same as she had been in the rift. Yet, as her body unfolded from one plane of existence to another, she felt as if she was becoming something for the first time, as if every cell in her body had been bruised at the same time. She gritted her teeth and took it. The thoughts of her squad came instant after instant, so as to overlap one another. As Asha pulled the thoughts apart to discern them, she knew not from which pilot each thought had come. Blazing, we're in atmosphere. Miscalculated. Can't stop now. I'm not getting fleet thoughts. Did you guys hear that? That thing about the deep? Yeah, I did. It's the shock of re-entry. Concentrate. Give it a moment. Leave comms to me. Animate. Somebody messed up. Nothing's as it should have been. And stast. Asha switched power aspects. She pressed into the side of her dart and poured all of her animation into the wings. She was spinning, first this way, now that, now under control, now out. Incoming details. Incoming from our fleet. Incoming what, dammit? Incoming detail. Fleet thought. All points. Then came a thought that Asha knew well. It was the higher power of Ingfrid and all other wisdom above the orphan fleet. The thought came all at once, a vivid L-stream. It wasn't a memory, it was what was happening at that very moment. Your lives depend on the next seconds. A young man floated within the ranks of the wise, who had gathered round the children in D. Maiden Park. Ingfrid looked on in horror. The young man dropped to the grass. He motioned around him. 
he was surrounded by the boys and girls born in the voyage to Shell. You've just re-entered real space inside of a minefield. Unless you hand over your power to our fleet in the next ten seconds, we will blow you all to pieces. Ingford blinked. Who are you? The other fleet. The young man looked to his watch. Some of your ships will escape the mines. We'll wipe them out too unless they come. Five seconds. It'll take time. Give the order and your fleet will obey. The young man met Ingford's eyes. Do it, fleet commander. Do it now. Ingford nodded. Five seconds, not long. Long enough. It was as if her allies had prepared for this exact contingency. Can the wise keep their energy? Infrid asked. They will die without it. Yes. Fleet thought all points. Infrid spoke to whoever was listening. Surrender immediately. The young man smiled. We'll start the transfer shortly. No, Infrid thought. Now. Ingford grew faint as her power whispered away from her. Pathetic, Elsingford said. All your years and plans for naught. Ingford kept her eyes on the young man. He was so pale, he was nearly blue, and his features were sharp and elven. And as confusion darked his face, Ingford took a modicum of comfort in the fact that her last act would be to his inconvenience. Your power, he said. It's gone. I told the fleet to surrender, Ingford replied. I must die. The young man stalked across the grass. Where did your power go? You had quite a bit. What does that matter? We've surrendered. Every bit counts when it comes to Shell. As he came toward Ingford, he never broke eye contact and never broke stride until he was mere inches from Ingford's face. Tell me where it went. Ingford detected a kind of unflavor on the man's breath. She saw the flecks of gold and green in his eyes. Union? Ingford asked. Tell your scouts to submit their power to the Union fleet. Well, they can't very well turn around. Give them an hour to sort it out. Tell them, Ingford sighed. Sadly, you said that the wise could keep their power. All of my scouts have the power of wisdom now. The gold eyes flashed. That wasn't what I meant. I'm sorry to hear that, but the deal was made. There were flecks of spit on the man's breath. Unmake it. Well, you only gave me five seconds, and I've given up my power to command. The gold of his eyes vanished in the shadow of his brow. I suppose so. The young man thrust his arm into Ingford's chest. The two locked eyes as the young man's reinforced arm cut its dull way through Ingford's belly. The man stepped back. His green and gold uniform was darkened by Ingford's blood. A glaive of else light shone up and down his right arm. I'll leave it up to your scouts to decide for themselves, the young man said. Just know as you die, Ingford, that one of those trusted scouts betrayed your trust. Ah, Ingford thought. So it was a mistake. Chapter 12 The L-Stream ended. Asha felt a sudden rush of energy. Was that? Yes, said Els Asha. Power. Suddenly, Asha had control of her ship. The reserve of her power was deeper, wider, and she poured herself into the wings with abandon, sensing and controlling every tendril of air. Asha had used power that would have destroyed her yesterday. Today she had control. Anyone else just feel their power double? Hodney asked. 
If only. We've got the power of the wise, Rook thought. Orders of magnitude above what we had. That is, if Ingford was telling the truth. Yeah, Asha thought. Real time, dream inhabitation. I've never felt a vision that vivid before. It was like Ingford... Asha stopped herself. The next thought came from Walleye. You okay, C? We can't turn back, C thought. Her voice was level and calm. That was remarkable, considering she just witnessed her mother's death firsthand. What now? Rook asked. We land in the breach, C thought. Put a roof over our heads. I'll make the call about next steps if we're alive to take them. Asha nodded. She looked forward. The surface of shell blazed beneath her. Asha tried to pick out cities or towns amidst the neon green catch grasses. Finding nothing, she focused on the breach. The entrance to Shell's spiral hollow rose up and over the curvature of the planet. The breach stretched only halfway across the planet. Elsie is at the southern edge of the breach, C said. The spiral should be tighter at the poles. Asha looked to her left. The rest of the drop darts were making good time. All three punched through the air like bullets, leaving whips of vapor with every change in direction. Level out, C said. Hodney's not reading anything on the surface. The anchorites are probably inside the planet. Think Union's already taken care of them? Rook asked. Hodney, show them the Union fleet. Dozens of sprites danced at the corner of Asha's vision. She glanced down. Blazes, are those all cylinders? Hodney's thoughts were flat and stoic. They have more people, but not more power. They were hoping to get it from us. I'm not reading signs of battle above or below. Prepare for a hot landing, C said. We're not getting back up. The mouth of the breach came closer and closer. It was bright inside, so much so that it was difficult to judge distance and depth. Hodney marked the LZ deep in the cave. No one protested. The further inside they went, the further they would be protected from the mass of ships overhead. Still no anchorites, while I thought. Rook thought back. They probably want to hide more than we do. Fifteen seconds, Asha warned. We can count, Quinn replied. Quiet. Asha was sweating. The breach came up to greet her. Steadfast, she whispered. She laid her fingers against her second triggers, awaited the signal, and fired. The rockets popped off. Asha's body shook at the impact. Her restraints threatened to strangle her, but... And she had no room for thought, only instinct. Land, eject, fight, fight, someone, anywhere. Eyes on the others? Rook asked. Asha heard Rook, and not through L-streaming. She was twenty meters away from Asha. Asha stared at the grass beneath her feet. A decade and a half after setting out for it, they were finally on Shell. It was the first planet Asha had ever walked on. Asha scanned their surroundings. She tried to keep her voice from shaking. No, no eyes. The inside of Shell sparked a primal horror in Asha's soul. She couldn't explain why. The walls and pillars shone with elsewhere light, the warm glow under which Asha had lived all her life. The same thing that gave Asha power and life ran through this impenetrable shell. Aside from the power, there was something odd about the breach itself. Long pillars of shell material ran from floor to ceiling in cockeyed and irregular patterns. Some pillars branched off at strange angles, and others formed webs and hollows that looked like ribs and sockets. Though the world glowed, 
It looked like a web of bone, all overgrown with mosses, grasses, and sickly trees whose leaves fluttered in some unfelt breeze. This isn't what the simulation showed. Not what we expected, Rook admitted, while I approached from Asha's other side. There's only so much you can guess from a hundred light years out. She pointed to Quinn's ship, which had landed a few meters further away. She's not disembarked. Asha, help her. Rook looked toward the sliver of sky behind them. We'll get the problem child safely landed. Asha nodded. She split her power between the aspects of flight and armor and made for Quinn's start. With the extra elsewhere power she'd gotten from Orphan Fleet, she felt as if she'd never need to worry about burnout ever again. The others have power too, warned else Asha. Asha thought about that. If the others suspected that she'd dropped them in too low, they might team up against her. They were all strong as Asha felt now. They were five, and she was only one. She was at the dart in an instant. She looked to the empty cockpit. Quinn, she called. Quinn, where are you? Something caught her arm. She toppled sideways. Her else armor and flight kept her from cracking her head on the shell, but just barely. Quinn put her knee on Asha's chest and pinned her to the ground. Quinn's eyes blazed with elsewhere light. She held a bright, thin else blade in her hand. Don't move, she hissed. Asha nodded. She didn't have much of a choice. Quinn was using the aspects of armor and attack. If Asha dropped her else armor, she would be vulnerable to attack. Only armor and animate were strong against attack, and Asha had nothing to animate. Even if she did, she couldn't animate it before Quinn brought down her sword. Else flight's mobility meant nothing under Quinn's knee. You brought us in too close, Quinn said. Asha considered lying, but Quinn cut her off. That's why they shoved you under our team. Sure, Asha spat. She had another line, the same she'd used against Ingfrid. It's what the fleet wanted. I had no choice, and neither did you. The fleet is no more. Quinn let her blade drift lazily through the air. The only thing that matters now is loyalty to our crew. We can still... Quinn's blade moved faster than the eye could see. Asha hissed in pain, her shoulder... You can do as we say, Quinn sneered. Any more or less, and I'll give you a cut that you won't have time to feel. Asha gritted her teeth, but nodded. She could feel a thin bruise forming on her left shoulder. Full armor would have turned away such a flippant blow, but half of her power was attuned to flight. Quinn stood. She turned toward the others and sent them thought. How's it look? PC's a few minutes behind, Rook said. The big dumb rock is a little less aerodynamic than us. El Sasha spoke. Now. Her word rang within Asha's skull. Take her down. Now. Asha put the whole of her power into attack. An else blade sprang into her hands. It swung toward Quinn's legs. Quinn deftly turned the blow with her own blade. Even at half strength, her sword was enough to parry and riposte. Her sword nicked Asha's shoulder again, cutting open her jumpsuit. With Asha's sword out of the way, Quinn landed an armor-reinforced kick into Asha's backside. The blow had the force to send Asha into another tumble. Asha staggered to her feet. She split her power between armor and attack and glared up at Quinn. What's going on? Rook asked. Asha glanced up at the other two dart pilots who looked on in confusion. Asha looked back to Quinn. The woman stood ready to bat Asha down again, and Asha had no doubt that she could. 
She'd never seen anyone so fast or dexterous. Her backside ached. Quinn sent Asha a private thought. Got to admit, I didn't anticipate you being a lefty. I didn't anticipate... Hush, fool. Another time. Asha's lip curled up in a snarl, but she complied. It was a few more minutes until the problem child touched down. Though there were no enemies in sight, Asha still had a duty to perform. They started back toward the others. I think I see it, Rook said. Asha looked out from the breach. The sky outside held a odd sunset glow. She was close enough to her squad mates to hear Walleye ask, Where? You can see its glow, Rook replied, like a morning star. Indeed, the glow was evident from kilometers away. Walleye frowned. It's moving too fast. That's just your eye talking. Quinn mumbled something to herself. Speak up, Rook turned back to Asha. And maybe explain why you kicked the rookie's ass. Another time, Asha said. Rook shook her head and looked back to the horizon. Talk, Quinn. That's not the child, Quinn said. Rook frowned. Explain. The child wasn't six ships. The four squadmates looked at the glowing dot in the sky. From a distance, the light seemed to be coming from a single mass. The closer, however, the dot came, the more it looked like six dots. While I groaned, should we run and leave our girls alone? Rook shook her head. She glanced back at the web of pillars that stretched tooth-like across the breach. We were here first. I'd say that gives us a home field advantage. Get up high, while I said. She looked to Asha. You ready, rookie? I'd say so, Quinn muttered. She met Asha's eyes. She's dueled against the best there is, after all. Alright guys, I've been trying some new audio biz with this audiobook. If you want to find out how these people got ambushed, what they're about to fight, and uh, what's at the bottom of this siren deep, then please check out our next few episodes. There's going to be one tomorrow, one the next day after that, and one the next day after that, if everything goes according to plan. And to count them up, that makes four parts of this four-part audiobook. I really hope to see you soon. Um, please share this with your pals. Uh, go ahead and like it wherever you find it. And uh, give us some good ratings. And uh, let us know what you think. Alright, love you. Bye.